everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to have joining us Bonnie Snyder. She is at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, an amazing organization. And she is actually the director of FIRE's high school outreach efforts. Most of you who've heard of FIRE probably think of them as a group that is mostly focused on higher education. But of course, everything that starts out in colleges and universities eventually trickles down until it gets to kindergarten. So we brought Bonnie on today. We're so thrilled to have her to talk to us a little bit about what is going on in the high school front in terms of the atmosphere around free speech, the woke sensibilities that are happening there. And so I just wanted to start, Bonnie, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's been going on at some of the private schools in particular. Some of the most elite private schools are actually seeing some pushback from parents over their atmospheres. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that what is novel this school year is we're starting to see parent groups organizing and mobilizing to oppose what they see as overreach in their children's schools. This problem isn't really new, but hearing from parents so openly is new. For a long time, parents and students have been very reluctant to talk about this problem. And when they have done so, it's usually been anonymously. Some of it is still happening anonymously. And I do want to say, too, that I have some personal experience with this. One of our daughters attended a private school, and I felt that I had no choice but to remove her after three years based on problematic situations that were happening. So one of those situations was that there was a school diversity club that would meet once a week in the mornings, and students were sort of brought into a room and assembled in a circle. And the teachers would sit outside the circle and the students were expected to stand up to indicate whether or not they supported a certain cause. So it was a very public display of support. And if you didn't stand up, you were sort of informally targeted in the hallways later for corrective action. Were these causes focused on race or more broadly? Oh, I would say sometimes gender. Honestly, I don't exactly know. But what I do know is that on Tuesday mornings, my child would not want to get out of the car because there would be stomach aches and sometimes tears over what was impending. So sometimes I made her go in and sometimes I took her out to breakfast instead because I had a clear sense that what was happening was emotionally threatening. So I think it was a variety of causes. And incidentally, it was a student-run group, a student-run activity, but the teacher sort of sat there and let it happen and didn't see anything wrong with it and allowed it to proceed. Other incidents I've heard of are I've heard from parents who had a student who was labeled a racist by their teacher, by teachers in the school, and that situation deteriorated pretty badly, and the student left the school. And I don't have all the details of the situation because it's sort of pending the final resolution of that. And we are seeing groups forming, for example, there's Woke at Brentwood is one, and we're seeing Woke at other schools that are forming and asking students to come forward with screenshots or pictures from their phones or stories and examples of incidents that they've experienced that I think at FIRE we would characterize as violating students' freedom of conscience, their own free thought. When when you say these are groups that are forming that are woke at something, they're sort of criticizing the wokeness. They're awakening to the wokeness. (laughs) (laughs) They're awakening, yes. The the great awakening, yeah. Yeah, we know Harvard-Westlake, which is obviously one of the most supposedly rigorous academically schools in the country out in Los Angeles, now has groups of students and parents 
you know, who are posting to Instagram some of the things that they're seeing in their school. There does, I think you're right, you know, seem to be a change here. So I sympathize, of course. I wrote a piece earlier this fall about removing my kid from Rye Country Day, which is a private school up here in Westchester. And the kids were, you know, regularly subject to lectures on microaggressions, how, you know, the worst thing is if you think that somebody is wearing a dress and you assume that they're a woman, the idea that you're engaging in this kind of microaggressive language, if you say something about how Asian kids get things right more on math tests, there's a whole range of indoctrination that seems to be going on. And it is interesting that parents seem to be rising up. What is FIRE doing as far as, you know, when you get these complaints? Well, we're not taking K-12 cases and we don't have immediate plans to do so, but we are having people ask if we would. We do litigate at the college level, but not at the K-12 level. So we're mostly doing education and we're also collecting these stories and we are coming up with sort of crowdsourcing strategies how to oppose them. It is very different between private schools and public schools. In some ways, it's harder in private schools to oppose it. Of course, you have the ultimate freedom to leave, but a lot of that's very difficult because of friend groups and because of perceptions of, you know, the prestige that goes along with having been admitted to the school and your college applications and things like that. So we have different strategies that we are recommending to families and to students. I mean, we're not just hearing from parents. We're hearing from students. We're hearing from educators. Not every educator is all right with this. A lot of them think that it is overreach. We're hearing from board members, trustees from private schools. So, and nationwide, I mean, we're hearing from people in the Northeast, Philadelphia area, in Chicago, Texas, California, pretty much all over the country. We're hearing sort of cries for help. Right. So, Bonnie, what is FIRE's approach then? Because, you know, there are issues of race. The problem is that the, the wokeness are saying that if you don't believe in a particular ideology, a critical race theory, then you need to be canceled. So what is the right approach? How do you tackle issues like differences around race in such a way that you can actually engender a debate, healthy debate? Right. We very much believe in free, open, rigorous debate for a number of reasons. We don't believe in censorship, certainly. And these are ideas that are out there. And we don't think that students have to have certain points of view hidden from them. But we do believe that opposing sides need to be heard. And what we're hearing is that certain opinions are being squelched, intimidated from being expressed. So we're seeing this you know, narrowing of the opinion corridor, the imposition of what we would call an orthodoxy, which is the idea that there's only one right way to think. We're very concerned at FIRE about chilled speech. So one of the ways that we approach it is by bringing, you know, we believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. So we're trying to bring public notice to this growing problem so that people are aware of it. We think that it's problematic philosophically because of the marketplace of ideas and just enlightenment million thought that says, you know, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. We think it's problematic pedagogically because of not being exposed to rigorous debate and the dialectical tension of having to defend your ideas against competing ones. It's so much worse when the kids are younger. I mean, there's often this conversation about what goes on on college campuses. Well, you have a professor here who is 
kind of belittling or arguing against a student. And obviously the, the professor has a lot more experience, not to mention, you know, they have your grades in their hands. But I think, you know, when you're dealing with high school kids, you know, it's even more of an unfair fight. It's very hard, much harder for them to stand up for their viewpoints against these adults. They feel like they, you know, they have no power to do this. You know, and of course, college recommendations and grades hang in the balance for them. Well, and look, kids in school are what's called a captive audience. They're compelled by law to be there. Parents have to send them. And the teachers have a huge power differential over them with authority. And they want to please their teachers. They're immature. The teachers are adults. So as such, students deserve protection. And I like to point out that in public schools, teachers are licensed by the state precisely because they are in a position to do harm the same way that a dentist, you know, or, or a doctor has to be licensed by the state because you have vulnerable people. Our most vulnerable citizens, children, are a very precious charge. And democratically, the schools are a function as part of the community consensus. And we don't have teachers unilaterally inserting lessons that don't conform to the learning standards that have been adopted by the state. And there are codes of professional practice, both disciplinary and through unions and educator organizations that call for objectivity and neutrality in the classroom in order for the schools to maintain trust. One of the most troubling things I'm seeing is a lack of transparency between the school and the home, which is why parents now are starting to share these pictures, you know, screenshots and examples of troubling curricula. I mean, there used to be a collaborative relationship between the school and the parent and the teacher, and we're starting to see an adversarial relationship develop in which seems that some educators think that the parents, I mean, teachers traditionally have acted in loco parentis, meaning that they are presumed to do what the parent would do if they were there in place of the parent. Right. And now they see the parent as the enemy. In some cases, yeah. And they have you know, access to students for eight hours a day and parents are rightfully upset, in some cases devastated and horrified by, by what they're seeing happening in some schools. But not all educators are on board with this. We're seeing, you know, changes in the demographics. We're seeing a wave of retirements of baby boomer educators who were more classically trained. So there is that downward drift from academia that is influencing it. There are people who think that it's sort of the manifestations of the Frankfurt School and what's called the long march through the institutions if you want to bring ideology into this discussion. And so I'm sort of arguing that we need to have a long countermarch through the institutions to, I mean, I have a manuscript yeah. that I'm working on where I've collected all of this called Undoctrinate, which is, you know, to restore balance because a one-sided education is not a rigorous one. And there are huge blind spots and you know, this is how groupthink develops, and this is just not healthy academically or for our society. That actually brings us to the other topic that we wanted to talk to you about today. So I'll, I'll let Ian introduce it. But yes, we want to bring our listeners some good news, too. So Yeah, so yeah, exactly. On the topic of indoctrination, one of the curricula that some schools have been seeking to adopt is what the New York Times produced earlier this year related to the 1619 Project, which seeks to paint America as grounded forever in white supremacy and this oppressive society that is forever holding down Black people. 
And Bonnie, full disclosure, you and I have worked together on something called 1776 Unites, which is a primarily a Black-led initiative that takes an alternative view that actually says the founding ideals of the country, of family, faith, hard work, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, were and are the ideals that people, when embraced, can move from persecution to prosperity. So in response to the 1619 Project curriculum, the 1776 Unites group has produced their own curriculum that was introduced around Constitution Day this year. And I'm very pleased to say that within a few short weeks, more than 5,000 units have been downloaded of the curriculum, 70% of which are people who identify as educators. Bonnie, you've had a chance to work on those units. Tell us a little bit about what the 1776 Unites curriculum is and what you've produced so far. So the 1776 Unites curriculum is based in, I think, uplifting and inspiring lessons that are meant to ground students in the foundational principles of American life, which is very much also something that FIRE you know, is very much aligned with our goals of teaching students why they should be happy that they live in this country, why they have many things to be proud of. We don't think that America is perfect, but we think that it is in many ways better than many. And we want to remind students of the positive stories that can uplift and unite us all as Americans. And they're not positive in the sense of that you're sort of whitewashing history. It seems like you're taking great pains to be very authentic and transparent about the challenges, whether it be some of the characters that you've identified in the curriculum. Yeah, exactly. We are telling stories of inventors and philanthropists and Olympians who have overcome tremendous adversity and tremendous odds, but have nonetheless demonstrated character traits of resilience and grit, perseverance and optimism that we want to inspire in our students today. I think that one of the things in schools that is happening that I find most discouraging is the disempowering and the dispiriting messages that are being implanted in young people. And I just think that that is so developmentally inappropriate and unhelpful to youth. So I am so happy to be able to contribute to this project. And I'm so inspired by the group of scholars and Americans who come together to present these lessons to our young people. So I wanted to ask, so you You said that 5,000 downloads of the curriculum, or that's 5,000 schools that are thinking about adopting it? We're still analyzing the data. So there have been Uh 5,000 actual downloads. And for each download, you have to identify who you are, where you are in the country, what type of person you are. And about 70% are educators, which we are very excited by. So we don't yet know how that translates yet into schools. But if we benchmark it by what the New York Times 1619 project says, which is that they've had 3,500 downloads over the course of the entire year since its inception, then that gives us some encouragement that there is a desire. I mean, one thing that, you know, I listened last week to a webinar of teachers who were, some were using the 1619 project. One thing that became clear is that they are looking for content that tells a more complete and authentic story of the African-American experience in the United States. 
And one of the reasons they downloaded 1619 was frankly, it was the only game in town. Now that there is something called 1776 Unites, which is not running away from the story of slavery, but just telling a more complete story, as you say, Bonnie, stories of resiliency, invention, innovation, teachers are very excited to bring that to their classroom. So I think that's part of the answer here is create a more complete, more authentic story that tells what has happened to people when they have embraced the founding ideals of the country. Yeah, and I think this this sort of relates to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, that I think teachers are sort of don't necessarily want their kids to buy into this victimization mentality. I mean, when you look at some of the posts that you saw from kids and the initial outcry, you know, that there was racism in all the schools, I mean, it was just Instagram page after Instagram page of, you know, this is how I was oppressed by this teacher and this is how I was oppressed by this teacher. And it was, you know, this teacher, you know, said the wrong thing to me, looked me the wrong way or something like that. And I think, you know, that is not the way you want to have a dialogue in a classroom is this sense that the students feel like they're oppressed either from, you know, one perspective or another, but fostering this kind of curriculum and the dialogue that should go along with it are what more of what we need in the schools. And if I could just interject, I'm going to fully confess that working on this curriculum project has been a real education for me. I was ignorant. I'm informing myself and I'm learning these really neat stories. We were down in Myrtle Beach recently and we saw one of the schools that was formerly one of the Rosenwald schools, which I would not have understood what that was had I not had the opportunity to work on this project. So, And I do want to give credit to the 1619 Project for inspiring more discussion about the gaps in our curriculum. And, you know, at FIRE, we don't want to censor competing views. That's not the point. We want to make space for many competing opinions to exist in the marketplace of ideas. So I think that they spurred this project, which I think is its own awesome contribution to the ongoing conversation. I mean, the backdrop that you just said, the fact that you're discovering information I mean, the National Assessment for Educational Progress just reported the data on student understanding of American history. Only 15% of all 12th graders were proficient in U.S. history, and 24% were proficient in civics. You know, do you know the basics of American democracy? So that's the backdrop that a 1619 project can come in and actually have falsehoods. The founding of the country was 1619 and not 1776, or the Revolutionary War was fought to defend slavery. Like these are actual falsehoods. But given the level of lack of knowledge by students and frankly, teachers, it's not surprising that this kind of content can be so widely accepted. Yeah, the students and the teachers are just kind of a blank slate in some ways. And and you could just sort of fill it with anything if you want. So we're we're happy to see the 1776 Unites is filling that void. Bonnie, I think it is helpful. Can you talk a little bit about the Rosenwald schools? Because I, I am constantly shocked that even educators are not familiar with what happened. I mean, my husband taught at Clemson for a time and we lived near one of them. And yeah, I think it was just called the Black School. But the Rosenwald schools were a joint project by Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald, who was with Sears and Roebuck, and he was a philanthropist. And they had this idea that in order to uplift freed people in the South, that they should collaborate on a series of schools that would be partially funded by community effort. And so they were just very unique 
schools that were built, like thousands of them across the Southeast. And it's just like in plain sight. And yet you just don't see them because you're not aware. And they were beloved within their communities and hugely successful and uplifted, you know, generation or two before the Brown versus Board of Education decision desegregated schools. And so, you know, now the narrative, I think, is that segregated schools were all bad, but the Rosenwald schools were very successful for their time and in what they accomplished. And I believe graduates include John Lewis and Maya Angelou of Mm. the Rosenwald schools. So like, you know, public figures that we all know and revere, this is part of their life stories that was obscured. And now I think more people will understand that. And they're trying to preserve many of them now as, as museums, which is what we saw when we were driving through Myrtle Beach. So you can actually visit some of these schools now and learn more about them. It is instructive to note that the 1619 Project in all of the words that were published made not one mention of the Rosenwald schools because it conflicted with the narrative of Black oppression. That was an example of incredible self-determination and independence, even during segregation. Yeah. All right. Well, we're excited that you're helping to bring this information to students today and also helping them to understand the principles of free speech and free expression in their schools. And so we wanted to thank you, Bonnie Snyder, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You can download Are You Kidding Me on the AEI website, our podcast channel, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks for joining us.